0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. So I've been waiting for the right moment to discuss gender identity, sex differences, and the transgender revolution. And that moment has come. My guest today is Helen Joyce. Helen is a staff journalist at The Economist magazine and has been an editor there since 2005. She also has a PhD in mathematics from University College London. Helen just released a controversial new book called Trans When Ideology Meets Reality. Now, this is one of those books that is likely to be misrepresented on Twitter and in some media as transphobic, but is in fact a deep and thoughtful attempt to navigate all the complex issues at the intersection of gender identity and public policy. Helen and I discuss the difference between gender and sex, we discuss evolving definitions of gender different waves of feminism. We talk about gender dysphoria and related phenomenon like autogynephilia. We talk about trans identity as well as gender neutrality. We talk about hormone treatments, puberty blockers, and detransitioning. We talk about the age at which people should be able to make these kinds of decisions. We discuss gender pronouns We talk about the logic of sex-segregated spaces, such as locker rooms, bathrooms, sports, and prisons. And finally, we talk about the phenomenon of social contagion as it applies to gender identities. This is one of the best conversations I've had in recent months on this podcast, so I hope you find it interesting. Without further ado, Helen Joyce. Helen Joyce, thank you so much for coming on my show.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: So before we get to your book, which I'm, I'm really excited to discuss, can you just give my audience a sense of who you are and how you came to be interested in trans activism and gender dysphoria and all those related issues?
1: I mean, I can, but I don't think any of it's going to make very much sense because I've taken some very unusual twists and turns in my career. So. I'm Irish. I'm in my 50s. I wanted to be a dancer when I was a little girl. I went off to dancing school and that didn't work out. So I went and did a maths degree instead. And then I thought I wanted to be an academic. So I did a maths PhD and even some postdoctoral work. And that didn't work out either, really. So I moved into public understanding of maths. So I worked at the University of Cambridge, editing a magazine there. And then for the Royal Statistical Society, editing another magazine and in 2005, I applied for a staff job at The Economist writing about education. And I've been there ever since in a series of jobs, um, education. And I went out to Brazil and lived in Sao Paulo and wrote about South America. And when I came back from Brazil, I did a job called International Editor, which was commissioning and writing, thinky, big, big, you know, long reads each week, basically on an incredible range of topics. And one fateful week, a commissioning editor said to me, why do kids keep coming home and saying, you know, such and such is non-binary or such and such is trans? And I said, no idea, never heard of this. I'll look into it. And that would have been about 2017, I'd say. And it just intrigued me so much in so many ways that um here I am, nearly four years later, still going on about it.
0: Yeah, there's been a revolution in what the concept of gender means and how it relates to biological sex. And I've, I, think, I, I don't think I've ever spoken about this on, on my podcast, but it's something I've been thinking about you know, since I was a teenager. And so I, I'm 25 now. In 2012, roughly, I would have been a sophomore in high school or, or a junior in high school. And that was the first moment I remember, really through Tumblr and through my friends at school, being exposed to very confident ideology that seemed like a update on what I had been sort of taught to believe about gender. And, and then obviously, I, after that, I went to Columbia, where that seemed to be sort of the, the default ideology and met many people that were especially gender nonconforming, gender non-binary, even more so than, than trans per se. And had a lot of opportunities to talk and think through these issues and and had friends that were gender nonconforming. And I, I was always sensitive to the aspect of it that was a social contagion because I, I had witnessed that firsthand with many of my friends. But this is something I, I've really been wanting to to speak about for that reason. Cause I think it's it's very important and there's a, a very strange and disturbing lack of of honest discussion between people who may be on different sides of the issue. Uh, there's a lot of like shouting and just like Twitter dunking, but very little idea that there, there can be good faith disagreements on these things, which, which matter because many kids are, are just getting one version of the truth. And anything that's skeptical of, of this sort of trans activist ideology is labeled bigotry. And no doubt there is lots of bigotry. Toward, towards trans people in the world. And that's something I'm sensitive to. But I think uh, it's, it's really important to talk through these things as honestly as we can. So I'm excited to try to do that with you.
1: I think it's amazing that you're doing it because precisely that. And it leaves people to imagine straw man versions of their, I don't even want to say opponents. I, I'm not opposed to anyone living the way they want. I mean, you know, because I think you read the book that um, in the introduction, I say it's not a book about trans people. It's a book about an ideology, an idea and you know people can have all sorts of different ideas and live in the world together, getting along fine. I mean I'm an atheist, that's very minority worldwide and you know religious people don't agree with each other either and yet we rub on. so that's all I want. I, I just want public policy to be such that people aren't forced to conform to other people's evidence-free belief systems, and also that children aren't told lies about what it means to be human and what's possible to do to the human body.
0: Yeah. So we'll get there, but um, let's start with some basic concepts here. The concepts of gender and sex are central to this whole conversation. And uh, there's been evolution in our understanding of those terms that you trace somewhat throughout the book. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: So really the word sex, properly understood, hasn't evolved at all. Um, I mean, we know what sex means. It's the two types that humans and other mammals come in, but also not just humans and mammals, lots of animals and lots of plants as well. And there are, you know, there are um, tiny organisms that, that that are not sexed, they, you know, bacteria, they just reproduce. But bigger animals have two ways, two reproductive strategies. And it was Darwin who worked out how those two strategies fitted into evolution in his theory, in his book, The Origin of Species. He said there were two ways that we evolved. One was natural and one was sexual. They were the two types of selection. And the sexual selection works on us as sexed beings who must try to reproduce. And and really, that's all there is to be said about the basic idea of what sex is, it's the the small gametes people that we call male, the large gametes people that we call female. And you know, people obfuscate this by saying, oh, intersex people. But I mean, they don't say that about eyes. And there are some people born with just one, you know, or some people born with six fingers. And we don't worry about that when we talk about the definition of how many fingers or eyes humans have. You know, these are exceptional cases. They don't destroy the idea of what sex is. So sex is that physical reality, and it has lots of consequences. Some of the consequences are natural consequences. The Females are the only ones who get pregnant, but lots of them are social. And that's what I would have meant by gender five or 10 years ago, that gender was the social consequences of sex. Some of them perhaps innate, like, you know, p- people do have reasons to think that there are genuine on average differences between males and females. Lots of them societal, some of them big impositions, like gender is such, some people feel it's a prison. Uh, some people find it as an expression or a performance, but gender is much more fluid and separate from sex. I don't know, if that, did that help? I mean, it's such a yeah. strange word, gender. It means such different things to different people.
0: Right. This is exactly, to me, gets to the heart of one of the deep puzzles with the trans activist ideology as it relates to the kind of feminism that I think I grew up with. And that still makes sense to me today. Like the, 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 style of feminism I was raised in was the notion that whether you're a male or a female, you can be any kind of way you want and still be a male or a female. You can be a boy. Yeah. You can be a boy who likes pink. You can be a boy who likes dancing and hates sports. And that's totally okay. You can be, a, you can be a girl that doesn't like to wear dresses. You can be a girl that likes to play with the boys and not wear dolls. And that is totally okay. No one should ever make you feel like because you're a boy or a girl, you have to conform to what the majority of other boys and girls happen to be interested in. So it was just a, an ideology that put individual self-expression and, and freedom at the, at the forefront and was a rebuke to older notions, more rigid notions that if you're a girl, you've got to get married, be a homemaker, raise the kids, all of these rigid formulas that, you know, although many women did thrive in them, many, many women were completely suffocated by them. So this, this ideology was just a, a rebuke to that, which said gender is essentially an empty concept. There are as many ways to be a man as there are men. There are as many ways to be a woman as, as there are women. And And then there's this other concept of gender, which is more, uh, which is central to the trans activist ideology, which says something importantly different in a way it's the opposite of, of that idea.
1: Exactly. It's the inverse. It takes the thing that's outside you and puts it inside you.
0: Right. And so, you know, it says, if you're a boy that doesn't like sports or likes to wear pink, and I I realize I'm, I'm wearing pink as I say this, not, I didn't even plan that. Um, I just like the shirt that actually you may not be a boy, right? Like all of these, gender is not an empty concept in, in this view. It's actually very much a concept with content. And the upshot of that is that it, it encourages you to potentially make changes in some cases to your body to, to conform to uh, a notion of gender. And, and you know, I, I've also noticed... People who transition from male to female or female to male, the gender they transition to, they tend to take on very stereotypical characteristics of that gender, right? You don't find people transitioning to female and then being what you would used to call a tomboy very often, which is curious and, and highlights how, how different this notion of gender is than the kind of cent- the one that really centers just be however you are and, and that's okay. Does that distinction make sense to you?
1: Yeah, I think the, the earlier notion of gender, you could sort of rehabilitate it if you said, look, you know, our sexed bodies have important consequences for us as social beings, like really important. And some of those consequences will mean that men and women's lives are importantly different. You know, not all. Again, I'm just talking about averages. And you could call that gender you know, women being more interested in babies, which is hardly surprising given that we grow them and, you know, things like that. You see, you, you could have, there was a word, there was a meaning for the word gender that could have been meaningful. And then there's this other meaning that also could have been meaningful, but I find totally uninteresting, which is this performative notion, this idea that like, you know, when you're doing drag, drag, or, um, you know, when you're um, subverting the norms, you're doing something important and political that you're you're queering categories, and this is in itself a liberatory thing to do. And that strikes me as so unbelievably facile that I just don't know how it's been centered so much in universities in the past 30 years. But what I think has happened in the past, I mean, on the fringe, maybe in the past 30 years, but it's really sprung into the public consciousness between the last 10 and five years, and then it's really taken off. It's part of a broader move to take broad identity categories and put them inside people you know people turn into walking collections of identities it wasn't common when i was young even as a young woman to say you identified as something you know i don't i didn't identify as irish i just am irish and it seems so odd to me that people think that you can identify as something that you're not but once you start thinking about people as collections of identities there's nothing really stopping you. You can start saying, you know, identify as this, that and the other. And then this seems to be the really important thing. And I would say that, you know, I I do have to push back a little bit at the idea that trans people um, are very stereotypical in their gender expression. The thing is they have to be if they want people to understand and read what they're trying to do. Like I could wear anything I like and people can still see I'm a woman because I just am a woman. Mm -hmm. But if it was very important to you that people understood you as a woman, you wouldn't be able to just wear what you liked. You'd have to really damn well try. Right. So that people understood what you were aiming for. So I don't think, I don't think that the criticism you sometimes hear of trans people as being, you know, incredibly stereotypical and that they buy into it all is pretty, is very fair. I think they just, it's just what you have to do when you're trying to present yourself as something that basically you aren't.
0: It's a good point. I think um, I want to zero in on, on gender dysphoria and and, what it is and what we know about it scientifically at this point. So can you give a definition of gender dysphoria?
1: So I think the best way you could describe it is very deep discomfort with the fact of your sexed body. And the activists have moved away from that in the last several years. It used to be a condition for getting treated in a gender clinic that you you were diagnosed with gender dysphoria. And they would do these tests, um, which included asking your parents if you were a child or asking people around you, you know, had you tried to present yourself? Had you said, really, no, I'm a girl, if you were a little boy, you know, and it, that it causes you enormous distress. You can imagine that would be very distressing. It was very rare as well. It's become much more common. And I think it's because we're, we're creating it. I think our culture is creating it. I think our culture creates a lot of dis-ease in people's bodies in lots of ways, to do with using computers too much, getting out into nature too little, um, exercising too little, you know, living very atomized lives. And gender dysphoria for me is one of the ways in which people can be very uncomfortable with their bodies and its social contagion as well, which you mentioned, you saw it. Um, then the final part of this weird, fast, metastasizing ideology is that for trans activists now, you don't even have to have gender dysphoria. They'll say, you know, there are just people who are just gender variant. So people who are perfectly happy and feel no distress, feel no need to change their body, don't want to medicalize, medicalize at all, but still say, I'm really a member of the opposite sex or I'm really not a member of my sex. I'm something else. So that's just pure identification.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, one thing I, I think I've observed is that there's a pretty big difference between the trans phenomenon and the gender non-conforming phenomenon.
1: So gender non-conforming means you accept, to to me anyway, these are the best I can do in my definitions. And I accept that people have different definitions. Gender non-conforming just means that you don't feel you fit with the picture of what people have of men and women. Mm -hmm. And who the hell fits those pictures perfectly? Right. Right. And in in particular, gay people often feel that they're a really particularly bad fit. Mm -hmm. There's a strong connection between being homosexual and um, having you know, really strong feelings of gender dysphoria in childhood. And uh, really not, you know, it, it's, it's not just a stereotype that butch lesbians go around in dungarees or, you know, that men, that the gay men like drag, they do they, more often than is average. Um, so that's gender nonconformity to me. Gender nonconformity to me is an entirely liberatory thing. It's accepting the truth of your body, but refusing to let it limit you in what you choose to do. And not worrying if that means you stray out of the blue box, right into the pink box or vice versa. Trans is the opposite. Trans is saying that the boxes are what we are. And if you were someone who was put in the blue box when you were born, they use this strange expression, gender assigned at birth or sex assigned at birth, which of course doesn't happen. I mean, you know, I've been pregnant twice and I knew what sex both my kids were when I was 20 weeks pregnant. They just looked on an ultrasound. Um, But they say that, you know, if if your sex assigned at birth didn't suit you, they mean like the pink box or the blue box doesn't suit you, you go into the other one. So to me, it's very gender conforming. It's just that it's taking the gender to be real and moving to the other gender or something like that.
0: Right. Big news in shoes. Rothy's is now selling men's sneakers and men's driving loafers. You've probably heard your wife, sister, mother, daughter, or friends talk about their love of Rothy's women's shoes. Well, now they've brought their sustainable materials, washable design, and innovative craftsmanship to men's shoes. Looking good and feeling great just got easier thanks to Rothy's innovative approach to shoe design. From the unbeatable comfort to the fact that you can wash them, these shoes check every box. If you hate when your favorite white sneakers or light-colored shoes get dirty, Rothy's men's shoes are for you. Their innovative washable construction means your shoes look like they were brand new with every wash. Everything Rothy's makes is better for the planet, too. Their elevated style is achieved through innovative manufacturing and materials. So for all the sustainability fans out there, Rothies men's shoes are knit with 100% recycled materials. Even the sneaker laces are made from plastic water bottles. Forbes calls Rothy's men's shoes a travel must-have, and Esquire makes a case saying, pick up a pair of these shoes before they sell out. Rothy's best-selling men's shoe, the driving loafer in Navy, gets a five-star review from almost every customer. To help you welcome the fall season in style, Rothy's is doing something special. They gave me the chance to share this rare opportunity with my listeners for a limited time. So right now, you can get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com forward slash Coleman. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash Coleman. So head to rothys.com forward slash Coleman to find your new favorites today. The other difference I've observed is most trans people I've met, I think probably all of them, have had serious gender dysphoria. Like, a, a, you know, and a, and a kind of a true deep suffering at the fact that they had a body that didn't fit Whereas, you know, it seemed to me gender and that kind of thing is, can be subject to social contagion and is to some degree, but it seems there's even a difference there between, gender non-binary where it seems to me there's a lot of people that kind of vaguely feel uncomfortable in their skin in the kind of normal way, in the way that even probably I and most people I know we're like, you know, at least half or more men of men I know don't totally feel like men all the time. And we have, everyone has at least a few things about themselves that really make them feel out of touch with their gender. And so there's a way in which you can be convinced that your normal creaturely anxiety and the sort of everyday, low level identity crisis that we call life can be made to seem as a, like a problem that needs to be solved by asking people to call you they, for instance. And that seems like talking about in a distinct way from being trans and having deep seated gender dysphoria. Do you, does that distinction make sense to you or do you see it differently?
1: Um, I mean you know having gender dysphoria is is real like it really it really has consequences it feels terrible, even if we've created it culturally you know it's all very well to say that, like smoking is a cultural disease too
0: well so 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 when you say that do you, you, you don't mean that all gender dysphoria is is created culturally do you do you mean it's amplified
1: definitely. or and I think some of it's definitely created um especially yeah. when people start in their teen years
0: so so isn't it true though that pretty much there's always been a very small percentage of people that have, has gender dysphoria. And it's probably, you know, at its core is a naturally occurring phenomenon that is being amplified very much by the culture now.
1: Um as far as we know, um, all the studies that were done before the very recent turn to um, which I can explain and um, gender affirming treatment for children suggests that most children with gender dysphoria grow out of it and most of them are gay. Mm -hmm. So there's a really strong connection between, not surprisingly when you think of it, between thinking that you're a bit different from everybody else when you're three, four, five, six, seven, but absolutely not understanding why, like Mm -hmm. why you aren't like the other boys and the other little girls. And if people don't interpret that to you as, oh, that means you're really a boy or really a girl, like the opposite of what you were born, you know, it can be deeply unpleasant and intensely awful, and you may need support from doctors and so on. But if they don't tell you that, what usually happens is that before or early in puberty, you go, oh, right, no, I get it. Now I know why I always felt different. I am different, and it's fine. I'm just gay. So, yes, there, it, it is a normally occurring phenomenon, but it's really quite linked to sexuality. There have probably always been some people for whom that answer doesn't fully satisfy them. They still feel very awkward in their bodies. And there are various um, traditional cultures like Samoa or um, in Oaxaca, um, where they have a sort of third category in which they put males who were so super gender nonconforming and also gay. And and that's a a sort of, I mean, it's not trans, it's cultural appropriation or cultural imperialism to call this trans. It's a really culturally specific phenomenon. But what they're doing is they're saying these are people who can't live comfortably being seen by the world as just any old member of their sex. There's something so different about them that we have to accommodate them. So I think that would be the nearest that you'd get. Although I'm told that it's not standard for the Fafafina in Samoa to feel any gender dysphoria or any dislike of their body. They just need to be allowed to live in a very different way from most other men. So, yeah, I think we make the discomfort. I was very struck by one researcher who knows a great deal about it and has been studying it for about 30 years. And he said, as far as they can tell, for children, the gender nonconformity comes first and the discomfort comes when they are taught by the world around them that their nonconformity is unacceptable. So you've got some sweet little boy who wants to dress as Elsa and prance around the place, you know, and he wants to grow his hair long and his idea of the upright instrument to play as the harp and so on and so forth. And then his dad says, you know, you're no son of mine and forcibly cuts his hair and makes him come hunting and go and watch football or something. That poor kid, you've created the gender dysphoria. He was highly gender nonconforming, but you've turned it into gender dysphoria by doing that. And then, you know, it may be that this has become so deep rooted. I know trans people who say this is what happened to them, that there's nothing much that they can do as adults except transition. There's no way they're going to be happy. But they think that it could all have been different. If they had been accepted right at the beginning, mm. so I don't, I don't accept this notion that gender dysphoria is this naturally occurring phenomenon with a base rate. Right, it's a hugely complex phenomenon that interacts with our, um, our cultural ideas of what it is to be a man or a woman, our acceptance of nonconformity, what it means to be nonconforming. Like, does it mean that you're cast out of your sex? And I do. And on top of that is this recent social contagion which mostly hits teenagers. And I wrote about the teenage girls in my book, but there's a growing cohort really fast coming up in the past couple of years of boys. And these kids are taught gender dysphoria online. Yeah. And they're told to contemplate their genders. They, they, make, they, they make themselves ill by thinking about it all the time.
0: Yeah. I think I um, that's the kind of thing that might just sound crazy if you're not, if you haven't seen it, but I think I was probably a part of the very first cohort to be deeply embedded in that Tumblr culture. You were have... really
1: early. You were really early. Yeah. yeah. 2015 is when it went
0: wham. Right. So the, a couple different things here. So one thing I wanted to address is the issue of pronouns and, and calling people by their pronouns. Uh, you know, there, there are people like Ben Shapiro who will say being asked to refer to someone by their preferred pronouns is a concession To the belief, or requires my belief that uh, biological sex isn't real. Like what what I'm saying when I address a trans person by what they want to be called, is that I believe the whole attendant ideology, uh, the trans activist ideology, which not even all trans people would necessarily agree with. um, But like you know, and it's 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 where it's always seemed to me I'm I'm happy to call someone what they want to be called. If, if, if I know that that's a way to make them feel comfortable in my presence and to validate that I, everything else held equal, I want them to feel freer around me and, and, and in the world. And if they want to talk about what we think about biological sex, well, then I'm going to be honest about what I believe and but it, it just, it's just—it's always seemed to me needlessly rude to not call someone what they want to be called, even if, you know, even if it's as simple, you know, I, I, I would call you by a nickname if it, if it were important to you, right? It gets a little tricky with they because it's so easy to forget. But still, it's like I'm—I'm going to make an effort to be polite, and I'm—I'm I'm curious what you think of because that—that this is a point of tension uh, in, in the culture right now. So, what do you make of the? the request or the demand of people to call you by preferred
1: pronouns? So, I mean, it is a demand. It's a demand I'm happy to accede to for someone that I know and I'm in the presence of, because it's just too conflictual otherwise. I mean, to me, it's a bit like calling a Catholic priest father. You know, I don't believe, and I'm not going to tell him I believe. And if he says, you know, when did you last go to mass? I'll say, God, that was a long time ago. And, you know, don't believe any of it, I wouldn't, start with that and I wouldn't like pointedly keep saying mister you know that would just seem bizarre and when I've had friends who are trans with to stay in my house or things like that of course I use their preferred pronouns if I wasn't going to I wouldn't have invited them I think but the problem is that it's not just a courtesy it's a truth claim now and so when somebody says my pronouns are she her they're not asking you for a polite concession they're saying I'm a woman and that's not just a personal claim, it's a societal claim. It's, a, it's something that fits them into public policy in a role that's fundamentally not correct, not, you know, not, not um, objectively correct. So we live in a world where not much is sex separated anymore. And that's great. Like women aren't kept out of all the things they used to be kept out of. And, you know, there's men who were midwives and nurses and nursery nurses and things too. And that's great. But there are still some things where we do them separated by sex, like sport, like showering and open showers. And those things, when somebody says my pronouns are she, her, what they mean is you've got to let me into the women's sports. You've got to let me into the women's changing rooms. And then I'm not okay. So I think when people say it's just a courtesy, they haven't thought through the implications of this wholesale insistence on a truth claim. And that's, and and I think I've probably become more hardline as a result. Because I see that ground was given needlessly or out of politeness or without or thoughtlessly even. And now we have people calling rapists she because they want to be called she. And then they want to be in women's jails and they're being put into women's jails. So it was probably the the, the thin end of the wedge there was the pronouns. Like you look at a person and you think you're suffering and, you know, why would I mind if you change your name to, you know, Susie and say you're she, her? Like, that's fine. It's no skin off my nose. But if Susie, she, her, is a rapist and says they want to be in a women's jail, yes, I mind very much. So it has to be that it's understood that this is a a courtesy. This is not a truth claim, and that's the distinction I would make.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm struck by your religious analogy. Like I would call someone reverend if they're a reverend without believing Christianity, and if they if they insisted that they wanted to create a, a Christian state or enshrine Christianity in the law, well, then we'd have a conversation in which they would realize how much of an atheist I am, but I wouldn't you
1: might say you weren't willing to call them reverend anymore. If they kept pushing, if they were changing laws so that it became illegal for you to express your atheism, at some point you might say, I'm sorry, I'm not going along with the reverend stuff anymore. You right. Know, I'm, I'm wiping it all out.
0: Right. But, but I would, I would always want really to preserve the distinction between, you know, calling someone what they want to be called and taking on there, you know, e- even if trans activists want to blur those lines, I would want to insist on keeping the bright line.
1: I agree. And I had to decide in my book what I was going to do because I talk about a lot of trans people in the book, even though it's not exactly a book about trans people. There are particular cases and, you know, in particular historical ones. And I've been criticized from both sides on this. Um, it's an experience you may be familiar with. But you can't yeah. get it. you know, you can't you can't do right for doing wrong sometimes. And there are plenty of women who feel that I made needless concessions by on occasion referring to trans women as she. And what I said to them is one of the things that I object to most in this movement is its totalitarian insistence on saying that the world is the way it wants the world to be, even when the world self-evidently isn't that way. They're trying to make a new world in, in this linguistic way. You know, that, you know, not only is this male person female, they have always been female. Not only can male people become female or be understood to be female and vice versa, that has always been the case. We just didn't realize it until half a second ago. So they're bringing their utopia into existence by language and then insisting all of us speak their language. And that's not how language and discourse works. So who would I be to say that my words can be forced out into the world, and that everyone must hear them the way I want them heard. And the fact is that the people I wanted to read my book, were people who are undecided, who think there's something weird going on here, you know, think, gosh, I need to know more about this. There's something about this that's bothering me. I was very surprised when I saw there was a bloke in the women's Olympics uh, weightlifting. You know, what's going on? What's going on with the kids? What's going on with all this stuff? I wanted that person to read it. And if I had gone he, 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 he about trans women, that person wouldn't have read it and would have thought I was mean. So I have to accept the world that's out there as much as I'm insisting other people accept the world that's out there. And the world that's out there requires me to think, how do I speak to communicate? How do I get people to read my book and listen to what I'm saying and understand it? So for me, the bright line was that at no point in the book should somebody be confused about what sex somebody was. That said, I'm not going to go around the place needlessly misgendering people.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you walked the line in in the perfect way, which is, to refer to someone as, as like a natal male and then thereafter as a woman, if it's, if it's relevant,
1: right? Yeah, or I'll say trans woman mostly. A I trans woman, that's them. right. Yeah. Right. And I'll say she when I have to refer to them again, and that's fine. I'm not, I'm not about being mean to people. I don't mean to be rude. It's just we've gone beyond politeness being enough here. You know, when we have children who are being put on medicalized pathways that lead to sterility, and when we have American governors putting rapists and murderers of women in women's shelters and women's prisons, the time for just being polite is long past.
0: Yeah, so well, let's talk about the, the issue of, of children because this is something that it, it's extremely important for us to not mince words about because we're talking about a very non-obvious problem to solve, which is that some people are genuinely going to be made happier by giving themselves hormones that change their bodies. And obviously other people are going to regret that decision. And we can talk about sort of what percentage falls into either category. But certainly some people are happy with, with that decision and it's just, it improves their quality of life to, to a degree that no one should want to deny them. But then, then there's this, this problem of how early is, does it make sense to allow someone to start to, to make such a drastic decision, right? And, and if you think of the, the kinds of decisions we'd be comfortable with kids making, like would you, if, if there was some bizarre experiment where, where your 12-year-old kid had to pick their spouse for life at the age of 12, I would go ballistic. W- would you even let your kid... Choose what four year college they're going to attend to when they're 12 years old. This is a decision, like your entire life does not hang on which four year college you go to. But even that, just because of how mercurial child psychology is, right? Like when, when I was 11, I was sure I wanted to be the next Allen Iverson. I wanted to be a basketball player. When I was 12, I was sure it was baseball or something. And, and you know, even sooner than that, I was the kind of kid that. I hated the notion that boys couldn't like pink because it seemed so arbitrary to me. So I, I didn't even truly like pink, but I just liked being gadfly and upsetting what the, the kind of arbitrary ideas people had, right? So, you know, hopefully we, we all sort of know what it's like vaguely to be a child, although we, we can't, can't really fully remember. But we remember the sort of mercur- mercurial nature Ever-shifting nature of our beliefs, the the lack of solidity, and so, you know, it it really becomes a problem to say that a kid has free reign over over a a potentially permanent decision, like taking hormones during puberty, which which can make you sterile in some cases.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you started by saying that it makes some people happier to take hormones, and for adults, we do have some idea that that is true. It's not an enormous improvement, but it was never meant to be an enormous improvement because this is a hard road to walk down. Like being being an adult who has been gender dysphoric for many years, this is not an easy world to live in. Mm-hmm. You know, you're never going to get exactly what you wanted, which is basically to be born different. So it made people a bit happier and that's what we're hoping for. Great. For children, we actually don't know because nobody's done the sort of test that would allow you to say that. The only sort of test that would allow you to say that this makes people happier is Something called a controlled trial, so where some people get the thing and some people don't. It should be randomized so you don't you know pick the great candidates to get it and the rubbish candidates to not get it or something. And that's never been done. There's never been a randomized controlled trial. There's never been a controlled trial at all on using puberty blockers or hormones in childhood. so we literally don't know. And this is when we do know that gender dysphoria normally goes. So, you're you're, you're talking about treating people that probably about 80% of them, if you just left them alone, would be fine. And you haven't ever checked to see if it actually makes people happier. What does happen is that um, it it seems to lock in persistence. So in the technical language, they say you persist. If you continue being gender dysphoric, you desist if you stop. Mm. And If you would have expected 80% desistance, that turns into 2% desistance if you socially transition the child and give them puberty blockers. And I really mean 2%. Some clinics have literally never seen a child desist, that they put on puberty blockers. So the puberty blockers interrupt the process whereby your developing body and your developing mind teach you what it was that was different about you and settle it all down and allow you to mature into your own sex and your own body. And the only way that we can think of doing these really remarkably huge interventions in children that would not be acceptable in any other circumstances, the only children who are given medicine that sterilizes them are children who would otherwise die of cancer. Literally, I mean it, the only ones. There's no other situation in which we would sterilize a child. It's you know only if they're going to die otherwise. And yet this medicine is given and it does. If you go on puberty blockers early and you skip your own puberty entirely, and then go on cross-sex hormones, you will be sterile. So they are giving children medicines that will sterilize them. And the only way you could think that that was the right thing to do is if you believe in the innateness of this gender identity idea. It has to be something that you were born with and that's the most fundamental part of you, rather like a sexed soul. And then when somebody says, when a child says, mummy, I'm really a girl, you understand that as the child expressing something that is a permanent, innate truth about themselves, and why wouldn't you then help? As opposed to understanding it in a developmental framework, which is, this is how this child feels now, and the evidence shows this is not how the child will probably feel in some years' time. How can we help that child to be happy and well in between?
0: So um, how widespread is the, the phenom- phenomenon in, in uh, America, Canada, in, in, in the English-speaking world and the world in general of putting kids on puberty blockers, is this? Because you know, I, th- I, f- I fear it could be exaggerated, it could be under-exaggerated, and I, I want to have a clear picture I mean, there
1: of... Are, there are no good statistics. No one's collecting yeah. them. And we have them here in England because there's only one clinic. And some some thousands of kids um, are seen a year now at the um, Single Gender Identity Development Service, GIDS, it's called. And not very many of them go on cross-sex hormones on puberty blockers, and then cross-sex hormones at sixteen. So it's not it's not a large phenomenon here, although the activists are pushing for much, much, much more of it. At the moment, it's actually halted because of a high court case, in which a judge reviewed the treatment pathway and said that no child under thirteen, and probably very few children under sixteen, could possibly understood what it would mean to give up your future for fertility permanently and so a child simply can't consent to this treatment so judges now said that here in america i mean it could be loads certainly thousands and maybe tens of thousands because you, you've got like dozens and dozens of really big full service gender clinics in america pediatric gender clinics i mean and there's a mapping process trying to find just by a report all the places that will give out um, puberty blockers blockers or hormones to minors and I mean, there's really hundreds. There are up at 300, I think, now that they found. Because in some states, you don't have to get parental consent, but your parents' insurance has to pay. So a 13-year-old can go to a planned parenthood clinic, get puberty blockers or hormones there. The parents' insurance will pay, but the parent may not even be told and certainly doesn't have the right to, to oppose it. Yeah, so I mean, it's not, it's not an exaggerated phenomenon. It's, it's a big thing. This is really happening big time. I mean, if you compare it to lobotomies, America ever only ever committed um, 50,000 lobotomies. And we still remember that as one of the most grotesque medical scandals of the 20th century. Yeah. We're way beyond that.
0: So um, another, another aspect I wanted to touch here was, you know, I, I don't know how this condition fits into gender dysphoria, because it, it seems to be actually a distinct thing that also goes under the umbrella of trans, but is... is notably different, which is autogynophilia. And this is, um, the sexual arousal that some men feel at the idea of being themselves women. And I, and I've known some men that have had this and occasionally men who have this transition to being women. And it, it's not it seems distinct from gender dysphoria in that they don't feel like they're trapped in the wrong body. It's yeah. that they, they get off to the thought of themselves being a woman and it's, a, it's arousing.
1: But I think that can cause gender dysphoria. Hmm. I mean, so, would you say that's, that's
0: a kind of gender dysphoria or is it yeah, something I distinct?
1: I yeah. would. So, I mean, the best study that gives us a base rate for men finding cross dressing now, it's, this is a separate thing. I'm not talking about being trans here. Um, was a study in Sweden a while ago and it reckoned that about 3% of men find cross-dressing sexually exciting. And, I mean, most of those men, <laughs> they don't think they're women, they don't want to be women. This is just a masturbatory aid, basically. And But a much more extreme version of that is when, when the, the transformation that's regarded as arousing is physical, it's not about the clothes. And that is something that... Um, 20 years ago or 15 years ago, there were societies for men who felt like this. And there was a fascinating article written by Amy Bloom in The Atlantic, I think sometime like 2005, called Conservative Men and Their Conservative Dresses. She went on a cruise ship that was all across. It was a cruise ship, I think it was. She went anyway to this meeting of middle-aged, very conservative, very you know, business-like men whose, whose greatest joy in life was their extreme transformations into women and their poor old wives had to go along with this. Anyway, she she talked to them. It was very interesting. But now those men are told if they go to visit a gender clinic that they're trans and that, you know, I think a lot of them would already have had some element of gender dysphoria. Like to feel such an intense desire to be very different creates gender dysphoria. Mm. And some men are okay with just the clothes. I mean, I interviewed for my book. I interviewed Anne Lawrence, who's a very well-known trans woman who wrote about um, being an autokynophile. And got hundreds of testimonies from other autochynafiles, and what Anne said to me was, um, "It was really about the genitals for her; they had to go. Mm. It just, you know, life couldn't couldn't be born with with male with male sex body." And this is a person who, you know, was a father, had kids, was married, um, and felt a lot happier afterwards. It has to be said. So, some trans people, a lot of trans activists, say that this doesn't exist, but. I mean, these are the people who tell you that we all have to believe everyone's identities, that they're the ones who say, you know, who am I to dispute somebody's identity? And then there's people like Anne Lawrence and many, many others giving testimony that this is how they feel. And suddenly they're told, no, you're not allowed to say that. This isn't is, real. Is
0: it, Why is that? Why, why is
1: it? Why? Um, because in, in, the, in the trans transactivist version of the world, in what I call gender identity ideology, gender identity is not a sexual thing at all. Right. It's like, a, it's, it's like your, your true inner self. Um, and they use metaphors like, you know, born in the wrong body or a pink brain in a blue body or things like this. These are very simplistic versions. No one sophisticated would say those, but children are told them as an explanation of what it means to be trans. They don't say, I and mean, there was a quote from um, Ray Blanchard, who's the guy who created the word autogynophilia and who studied a lot of them. You know, it's one thing to say, I've decided to be my true self and, you know, I've been hiding myself for all of these years. And, you know, from Monday I'm coming in and I'm calling myself uh, Maddie and, you know, I expect you to call me she. And most people will be very sympathetic. Like in most workplaces, I think people will be very accepting of that. And there might be an issue if you want to use the women's showers, but generally speaking, people want to accommodate you. But imagine coming in and saying, you know, I've been masturbating in my wife's clothes for the last 20 years and it's not enough for me anymore. But that's not going to work, is it?
0: Right. That doesn't elicit as much respect.
1: Any respect, and that's sad. I think, by the way, mm. I don't see. I, I, I wish that we could be less prudish and, um, you know, not make people hide what's true about themselves. I don't think we get anywhere by not being honest. And I know two people now who are self-described autochynafiles who have gone through surgery to transition, and both of them are much happier for being honest. Like one of them in particular really felt when he, as he was, you know, went and decided to transition, um, that it was because he really was a woman. He believes the whole thing. He believed everything the gender clinic told him. And he was very aggressive about it. Like anyone who disagreed was told that they were a bigot. And now 10 years after transition, much happier, by the way, and with much better mental health, like she says, um, you know, I know I'm a man and I know I've, there isn't a woman inside. This is a mental health condition. I did this to make myself feel better. It had big costs for other people, in particular her family. Um, but it was autogynephilia. It was it was a sexual, um, it, it was sexual in origin. Yes.
0: So, I mean, do we know what percentage of of male to female transitioners are in this category, as opposed to a sort of different?
1: It doesn't seem to be um, standard from culture to culture. Because what you're giving up by stopping being a man and becoming a woman varies from culture to culture. So if you're a gay man, it may be that losing male privilege, and I'm talking now about a very traditional society, you know, somewhere that really women stay home, whatever, giving up male privilege if you're a gay man may well be worth it compared with, you know, being an absolute outcast, and never being able to, you know, live sexually. So, that would be the case in traditional cultures like in Oaxaca or you know, Samoa until sort of recently when they've become more westernized. I don't think you'll find much autobinophilia there, though you'll probably find some cross dressing if you look, but very hard to find. Like, how would you know? This right. is not something people do openly or talk about. Right. But I mean, you know, these are heterosexual men. They're men who desire women and desire themselves as women. You don't have to transition for, for sex. And in fact, if you transition, you're going to lose. You know, status, jobs, the chance to marry as a man, the chance to be, you know, inherit or whatever. So you, you do, it, does, it doesn't even just go down that path. Like I think men in those cultures would would stop themselves from even thinking in that direction. And then the count um, at at Ray's clinic, it was about two thirds were autogynophiles and the others were were basically gay men who were just, you know, really had always been very effeminate and had always understood that to mean that they were really meant to be girls, and you know. You sort of look at them and you think, I know what you mean when you say you have a woman inside. I mean, it's nonsense, but you know what they mean. But the other ones, you don't know what they mean because it's this complex sexuality, basically.
0: So, um, so let's talk about the practical consequences for, for society uh, and sex-segregated spaces. I'm thinking of well, really just bathrooms, locker rooms, and I guess sports,
1: Anywhere that women get naked um, or are vulnerable, so that would count for me, um, doing medical exams or um, sleeping, so dormitories, you know, in mm-hmm. places like uh, youth hostels. So anywhere where women are vulnerable. And then places where people feel more comfortable and private. I mean, I've had men say to me, you know, we don't want women in our changing rooms either. Yeah. So, I know you don't. That'd be really embarrassing. It'd be horrible. You're not in danger, though. Not right it's not the same scary thing, however, you know privacy and dignity matter so so places where privacy dignity and safety are at issue plus places where strength differentials really play a role so that's sports so those are the those are the places that we're talking about
0: let's first focus on on the first category for, forget sports for a moment just just you know bathrooms and locker rooms and yeah so this is an, it's an interesting like the, the reason we separate these things in the first place, I, th- I think I just never questioned until a few years ago when this became more of a, a cultural issue. And I've also had, you know, at, at Columbia and at Barnard in particular, I have, you know, if you're, if you're visiting the dorms at Barnard as a guy, there are no male bathrooms. It's, a, it's like an all women school. So, you just, if you're hanging out with someone there, you go to the bathroom and you're in the yeah. bathroom with other women. Yeah. And, and I was in that situation many times. And it was probably the first time in my life I had shared a bathroom with a woman. And it was awkward every time. I, I can't fully describe how I felt, but it was like I felt like I was doing something wrong simply by being there. And I could sense that all the women there that I didn't know. Felt exactly the same way, like a. Not that they were seriously afraid that I was going to do something necessarily, but just, just
1: more alert. Just they more alert. alert. It's exactly,
0: there. exactly. Yeah. And I was aware of that—that that I was having that effect on them simply by existing.
1: Yeah.
0: But I can't point to anything bad actually happening in a concrete way, other than the mutual discomfort. Um, so
1: that varies from society to society, of course. I mean, there really are societies where people are just much more open about sexed bodies. I lived in Finland for two years and it's really very standard. Like every Finnish home has a sauna and it's quite standard to um, have guests to your home sauna with you and everyone's saunas together, male and female, naked in the home. Now, if you go to a hotel, they would usually segregate the saunas and they'd be completely naked as well, but they would be male and female segregated there. So, and then, you know, you go to Ireland where I'm from and You know, it's a very, it's a very body private sort of culture, like too much so. And, you know, a lot of people will, even in a single sex changing room, will you know use the towel and hover behind it and not want anyone to see anything, you know? So partly it is cultural. Yeah. But I don't think it's entirely cultural. There's a reason that we do these things. And, you know, a friend of mine said to me, when they make you say these things, they make you sound obscene. Like I end up being the one who talks about rape and I'm the one who ends up having to say penis and I'm the one who ends up having to say masturbate. I don't want to say any of these things. I never used to have to when we just were able to use the words man and woman to mean male and female people and we haven't pretended those words have no meaning. But the fact is that women are far more vulnerable to rape, to sexual assault. The most common male uh, sexual crimes are in fact flashing and voyeurism, non-contact crimes. And uh, like lots of men do those things. Most women will tell you that the first time they saw a penis wasn't related to them in any way was well, some bloke flashed at them on the street or and, you know, when they were little. And those things happen. So women, when they're naked and when they are in vulnerable positions, generally don't want any men around. Thank you very yeah. much. And yeah. it's not okay to say, oh, well, how many rapes have there been? It's not, a, we shouldn't have to, that's not the test of my level of comfort. It's not that I, you know, until I'm raped, I can't say that I'm uncomfortable. I'm not comfortable being looked at people that I don't know. I'm not comfortable with some guy who's clearly getting off on this situation. I'm not comfortable with someone who likes making me feel uncomfortable, you know? So there's all these situations where, you know, you're just not going to be able to use public spaces if you can't be sure that there are no men in them. And this is even more true for women from certain and quite traditional religions, so if you were an Orthodox Jew or an observant Muslim or an observant Sikh, it is just the case that your religion and your beliefs mean you cannot be in close proximity with people of the opposite sex who are not related to you. So if we say that places like changing rooms, public toilets and so on, that the female ones can admit male people, we are also saying that those women can't be in the public sphere. They have to go back into the home.
0: Yeah, so... So one thing that occurs to me here is part of the difference between places and spaces that like the Finnish sauna are sort of more open about these things is the notion that there's a a self-selected pool of people that would even be there to begin with versus a stranger setting. Yes. Where, so like the, the more strangers there are, the more you're going to want sex segregation
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm in a house now with three men. Like, I'm married to a man and I have two sons. Of course, I don't have sex segregated bathrooms at home. Why on earth would I? I, They're my relative.
0: Yeah. And I think that, like, one of the questions this raises is like, obviously, the most men, if they had an option of being in an all guys locker room, would choose the all guys locker room. Like,
1: yeah. Because that's just
0: like, it's, you know, especially if you're at, you know, if we're talking about high schools, it's like, all of us men remember an era during puberty where we just ha- got erections all the time yeah, 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 for yeah. no reason at all to, to, an uncomfortable degree. And to have that happen in a context where there are girls around and your body is not even, it's like you're insecure. It's, it's, it's like a nightmare. Yes, well, most, most men would not choose that, you know, and even if they were aroused, would, would choose, would want, prefer to express that in a different way. More appropriate setting. Most, yes. I'm curious what like the the self selected group of natal males that transition to women. In what way are they different from the majority of men? And in how would that have implications for how much discomfort women feel around them? Especially a generation of women who grew up where being trans was was more normalized. Like, would they feel that same level of discomfort? for the one trans girl in their class that they would for a horde of 10 guys in the, in the locker. Yeah,
1: I mean, if it's someone, you know, obviously it's just less of an issue. Yeah. Um, a lot of women would say that if you got, you know, if you go back long enough to, you know, gay clubs in the 1990s, you know, lots of women would, you know, a lot of their friends were gay or whatever. And, you know, your gay men friends were they like kind of almost one of the girls. They might come on the, the Hindu and, they might go out partying with you. And if that if that guy looks around and goes, I'm coming into the women's loo with you, you don't feel threatened. But the point was that it was never a right for men to come into those spaces. And it was women's right to say, no, this isn't okay. So if there was one woman in there who said, you know, no, I'm not comfortable, well, that guy would have to leave. Like if there, you know, if if there was a group that came in and they'd a guy with them, like other women might say, No, this isn't okay, you know. Mm. And now, because we say that. Um, identity claims trump everything else and that anybody anybody at all can say they are male female neither both whatever gender fluid one one day one the next and there's no outward marker of that well that means anyone can use any facility Mm. so you could really just be a trans woman like there isn't a special category of male that's trans women it's any male can be a trans woman yeah so now there just aren't single-sex spaces, like guaranteed single-sex spaces. And if you think, like, what men are going to take advantage of this? Hmm. You know, it's like the saying that the people who want to be politicians are precisely the people we don't want running the country. Mm-hmm. People, who, you know, you, you, you're not going to do that. You'd be embarrassed to go into the women's toilets. Right. But, but, you know, some guy who, you know, is working up to a major career as a flasher. Yeah. That guy would be quite happy to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so... um so let's talk about sports. This is, a, this is another cultural flashpoint. I'm, I'm going to take for granted that most people agree that men tend to be stronger physically than women. I know yep. there's... A, they don't,
1: but I mean, they're mad. So I
0: mean, You can find fringe academics with outsized cultural influence that will argue against what is one of the most sort of obvious facts of being a human mammal on earth. Yep. But uh, I'm just going to take that for granted that, you know, anyone who's been alive long enough has noticed that the boys just tend to win the arm wrestling contests like yep. pretty effortlessly. And that has consequences for, for sports. On, on the other hand, there is an interesting paradox here to me, which is, which I'm not sure I've ever talked publicly about before, which is, um, you know, there, there are these sports like, boxing where we separate out people by weight class, not just by gender. Yeah. Because we recognize that actually gender is not the only way in which the genetic lottery so stacks, it stacks the deck for certain people and not for others. That it's just a tradition that you're not going to fight someone who's a hundred pounds heavier than you, even if you're both men because it wouldn't be a fair fight. And yet, you know, in, in other situations, such as the NBA, we don't have an NBA for very tall men and an NBA for very short men. Maybe there's just one but NBA. Could.
1: We, we could. could. And it, we could.
0: Be it, would, it would. It'd be reasonable for the same reason that sort of boxing separate for weight classes is reasonable. But whether we do this in any specific case is to some extent a matter of just the tradition of the sport itself.
1: Right. So, so the reason that we have classes in sport, which can be age classes as well, like mm-hmm. under 11s, under 13, 15, 18, over 35, over 70, all, you know, there's all these age classes as well, is because what you're doing in playing sport, and I'm talking now about competitive, not necessarily professional competitive, but like someone's going to win and someone's going to lose, is you're trying to pick the person who is best, right? And what best means depends on the sport, Uh, hugely depends on the sport. And of course, who will be best really does depend on their innate characteristics. So in the book, I talk about Michael Phelps, who was born with everything that you could want as a swimmer. the guy, you know, his hands just reach out further than anyone else. And he's got his enormous feet with these superlatively flexible ankles that are like flippers. And, you know, he probably has a bunch of other things like... um, his blood can be more oxygenated than most people, so he's like this perfect physical specimen who was just able to beat all other men when he was at the height of his career. Um, now imagine you had a woman who had all of those things. She could be beaten by thousands or tens of thousands of men. But the thing is, she's a phenomenon. She's really amazing. She's got everything that you're looking for as a swimmer, but she doesn't have testosterone fuel puberty. So the reason we separated is because half of humanity can be incredible. But you won't ever see that if it competes with the other half of humanity, because quite ordinary men can beat superlative women. And that's the same in boxing, because upper body strength, and this is in weightlifting as well, upper body strength um, is is so variable with size and weight, and also very, very variable between men and women. Like it's the biggest gap is in what we can do with our upper body. So if there weren't many men who wanted to be boxers, we wouldn't have weight classes. And the fact is only the very big men would be able to be boxers. But boxing is immensely popular. People like watching flyweights. They like admiring their nifty footwork and, you know, how scrappy they are, whatever. I hate boxing. So I've now gone to the edge of how I'm able to pretend I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So that's why there are weight classes, because, you know, there are these these little guys who are just amazing. They're everything that you could want to see in a boxer, but they happen to be small. And you're never going to see that guy. He's never going to get to compete. He's going to be beaten by some big flabby guy. You can just punch him in the face. And that's that. And with this basketball, if there was a demand for it, yeah, of course there'd be hype classes. But nobody actually really wants to watch five foot four guys throwing the basketball around. If they did, it would make a lot of sense. So, so in basketball, I wonder things- about that.
0: I wonder if it existed, if it might not have more of an appeal.
1: Yeah, maybe because
0: you know, you know, watching a guy like Shaq play, watching there's something more one d- dimensional about a seven footer that can only I know, dunk, I
1: know what you mean right? as, as opposed to watching an Alan
0: Iris do all the tricks. And yeah, so like yeah, yeah. I, I think partly, it is a matter of what's been done
1: yes, and the, I think the momentum
0: of, of, of certain sports.
1: And it's also the way it's all become so extraordinarily extreme, like a generation ago or two generations ago, you didn't have to be seven foot to be in the NBA. Right, but, it's, but now, you know, the selection process, like the finding the people who have the perfect genetics, right. you know, finding somebody um, like Simone Biles, for example, like obviously the woman is an absolute phenomenon, but yeah. on top of everything else, she's tiny. And that's an incredible advantage in gymnastics. I was reading this amazing thing about her. She can fit one more trick onto the mat than anyone else she's competing with because she's so unbelievably tiny. Right. So, you know, if that was common, If there were loads of gymnasts who were five foot ten, like women who wanted to compete, then you you were going to have to do classes, height height classes in gymnastics. But at some point, there just aren't enough people to make it worthwhile. And also, people choose their sports depending on their body type. Right. Like, if you're seven foot, you're just not going to go into, you know, gymnastics, you're going to go into basketball. And if you're built like a a steam train, you're going to go into American football. And, And so, you know, there's sports for all these different body types, and that's fine. But what there would not be if we didn't segregate sport by sex is there would not be sports for women because in everything, right. women would just lose. Like right. The only things women could do would be ice skating and gymnastics because they're more flexible. And, you know, things like polo, where it's the horse that does all the work.
0: Yeah. And then God forbid you're a woman that's really into any of the sports that men tend to be better at.
1: I mean, men are better at nearly everything just because they're much stronger. So I mean, I, I was I I had no I had no idea until I researched it just how big the physical differences are between men and women. Is actually most of it's not visible on the outside. Like obviously you see you know women right,
0: and and, it, and it's just or, like the vast majority. I mean, I, I hope most women have not been in a full fledged fight with a man, and most men have never, been never sure. exactly. So you never actually get the occasion to to witness. Unfortunately, unless you're a victim of, of physical abuse, which many women are.
1: And you mentioned these academics who have these ridiculous theories. And I look at them and I think you've never talked to a woman who's been beaten up down and sideways by her husband, have you? Mm. Obviously not. You know, you've no idea. So the upper body strength, the punching power is especially is that the thing. It's the thing that is the single biggest difference in physique. There
0: isn't as much of a difference in leg strength, actually.
1: No, that's right. It's really, it's upper it's really about yeah. upper body. And the yeah. thing about a punch is a punch combines several aspects of strength. So it's the shoulders, it's the back, it's the arm, it's the hands, like men's hands and wrists are much, much stronger than women's. So a punch combines three or four um, advantages of men over women and all of them yeah. quite big. So one, one, stu- one study I read, um, they just got untrained men and women to punch as hard as they could. And there was no overlap whatsoever the very weakest man punched harder than the very strongest woman. And the average man punched 150% more strongly than the average woman, the average man did. I don't mean 50% more, I mean 150% more. Mm -hmm. That was the gap. Mm -hmm. So 2.5 times the punching strength.
0: Yeah, so obviously this is really relevant for mixed martial arts. (laughs) Yes. Where (laughs) where I, I know Joe Rogan has gotten into trouble for just really defending the complete sex segregation of the sport. Um, I think,
1: I think think all sex all all sports apart from the little things like polo and yachting or something, maybe, although in yachting, you know, upper body strength matters a lot too. They all have to be sex segregated. And, you know, I don't even understand what's so difficult about this because it's not a statement about anyone's gender identity. I happen to come from a very sporting family. I'm very unsporting myself, but I have brothers and sisters who are international standard cricketers. And in particular, one of my brothers and one of my sisters are two of the best cricketers Ireland has ever turned out. And um, you know the difference is huge. But my point here is that uh, women play on the men's teams all the time. So my sister, when she was captaining Ireland, captaining the women's team, she would play on a men's club side uh, at the weekend, like an amateur side. Um, at, her, at her very best, she played in the men's club's first side and then she played seconds because she couldn't get a good enough game otherwise. Right. So it's completely fine for women to play in men's teams. So why can't trans women play in men's teams? It's fine. It's not a statement about somebody's gender identity. Nobody was saying my sister had to be a man to play in those teams. I'm not insulting anybody. Now we just play according to our sex.
0: And if there's an asymmetry too. Like I, I would, if a, if a, Trans man, i.e. a natal female, wants to do jujitsu with like elects. Yes. To do jujitsu with a, a man that is willing.
1: They're the hard people. That's, to that's fine. Speech. Because if they take testosterone, they can't compete as women because it's doping.
0: Right, 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 right. If they want to compete with the men.
1: Yeah. Yes. But, and, but I don't see a problem with that. Women. No, I don't either. But they're not going to be competitive.
0: Yeah. So and, you know, and, that's well, their
1: choice.
0: Qu- quite likely. Yeah. Quite likely. But. You know, if there's a one in a million chance they shock the world, then I'm I'm Amazing. all for that person. You know, yeah. That's, I, I do I'm, 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 I'm all for the freedom to fail in that scenario, yes. or the freedom to yes. prove yourself.
1: I mean, I think that trans women can be accommodated completely fine in men's sports. Like, what's the issue? Yeah. You know, they're male, and this is the category for males. I think trans men who have taken testosterone are likely to find that there isn't anywhere that they can play competitive sport successfully. I don't have a good answer to this, but I know the answer isn't that they take testosterone and compete with women.
0: (laughs) Right. So, and I guess the last space where this is seems really relevant to me is prisons and prisons are a, a a really unusual space in society. They are, they're unique in, in many ways. And our prisons are, you know, many of them are just horribly governed and, they are sort of black boxes. We don't want to peer into. I mean, I, I just I just saw a story about a poor woman that was went to jail eight months pregnant and tried to notify guards of of going into labor and had to deliver her own baby. Yeah, right, because of just the incompetence of of the system. So, so like, we're we're talking about places that can't keep they can't keep drugs out they can't ensure the safety
1: run by gangs
0: yep run by gangs it's it's um it's really it's really a mess and um so can you talk a little bit about the the gender and trans component of of what has gone on in some prisons and, and how widespread this is
1: so i was surprised to discover that people have been putting trans women in women's prisons for a long time like 30 or 40 years in Canada, Australia, some parts of the US, but always Mm post-operative. So people who have undergone genital surgery no longer have male parts. And, you know, I don't think that's necessarily all right in the sense that, you know, are they really sure that all the women feel that this person is a woman? I mean, nobody seems to have asked. On the other hand, I can see that they felt that wasn't someone who could be in a men's prison. And you were talking about a very tiny number of people. So I, I can imagine making that decision. But there's this weird thing that happens in human rights or supposed human rights discussions where it's never enough and it always iterates. So first you move the people who are post-operative. And when at this time, this is 1980s, 1990s, um, you used to have to go through a a real life test, it's called. You had to live in role if you wanted to get surgery. You had to dress as a woman, present yourself as a woman for a year or two before they would do the surgery. And of course, a man who wanted to do that in prison couldn't because he was in a men's prison. So they successfully argued through some legal cases in different countries, in particular Canada and some parts of the US, that that man should be allowed to move to a women's prison so he could live and roll. But then why should he have to have the diagnosis? And now we've got to the point very recently in some American states, in California, the governor has signed this one into law pretty recently, and it was a pledge too, that they're just going to ask everybody's gender identities when they're... Um, sent to prison. And if they say that they're women, they're going to be put in the women's prison. So this is, I still can't believe this is happening. I just can't believe this has happened. I mean, there are no, no feminist and no women's organizations except a few tiny brave little groups of women who are vilified by everybody else fighting this. There are these big organizations um, like NOW and I I don't know all the American ones, but then people like the ACLU who say they're for human rights and they're actually literally putting rapists and murderers of women in women's jails. Blokes, just blokes, this is when I will not use preferred pronouns. Thank you very much. Like if some man who's a serial killer of women or who has beaten his wife to death says that his gender identity requires him to be held in a women's prison, that's the point at which I'm like, nope, that person is not she. I just don't understand how people who call themselves feminists can possibly not be screaming from the
0: rooftops about this. Yeah. So um, I guess uh, there's a, a, a lot of what you said and, and other people like J.K. Rowling and Chimamanda Adichie sort of get labeled as TERFs, as trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Um, do you, do you, I imagine you get this sometimes. And
1: Yeah, of course. But, you know, I mean... So does that mean I've to stop saying it? Like, does this mean like one of the cases, one of the people I interviewed for the book told me about was a bloke who had murdered his wife because she had come home and found him wearing her clothes. I'm sorry for that man. That man is ashamed of something he shouldn't be ashamed of. But anyway, he was so ashamed that he murdered her by throttling her with a piano wire. He nearly cut her head off he did it nice. so viciously. And he now says he's a woman and he's in a woman's jail. And not only that, but all the big human rights organisations and civil liberties organisations in the States backed him being transferred to a women's prison. And that's the point we get to when I come back to the preferred pronouns thing. If I had said there was this woman who murdered her wife by decapitating her, she said she wanted to be in a women's prison, you'd been going like, yeah, well, you know, there are some very violent women. The fact is, this is a man. And that's when my courtesy runs out when I'm talking about someone who murdered his wife like that. Well, it runs out a fair bit before that, but definitely it's run out there.
0: Yeah. Well, on that note, I think we, we can bring this conversation to a close. It has been, uh, it's been really good to finally be able to talk about this stuff. And I, I want to direct my audience towards your book. Can you uh, tell them where to get it?
1: So it's called Trans When Ideology Meets Reality, and it actually came out in the States two days ago when we're talking, so on 7th of um, September, and it's been distributed by Simon and Shuster very kindly. So it should be available in wherever you buy your books, really. It is the English edition. I just have to say to you, Coleman, I I couldn't be a bigger admirer. I admired you anyway, but I really admire you for being willing to talk about this because it's so easy not to. It's so easy just to say, there's a million other things I could be talking about. And there are. But if everyone says this, then the, the hardliners get to do what they want without any scrutiny because everybody else is saying, this is too difficult or this is too dangerous. Or, I'll get vilified or whatever. So, you know, absolute kudos to you.
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And right back at you.
1: Thank you very, very much.
0: All right. Take care. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.